Hello, I'm Phil and welcome to another Who's He video podcast. In this very special episode, we are privileged to talk to a legend of Doctor Who, a man so well respected in acting circles that John Pertwee once declared, I taught him everything I know. And what did he do? He threw it back in my face for being so bloody marvellous. The bastard. Yes, I can only be talking about the man who brought to life so many classic Doctor Who monsters. A man who even today is still revered in the field of monster acting. I'm of course talking about Hamilton Prickwillow. Hamilton Prickwillow was born in 1940 and again in 1941 and was the only son of Ashcroft and Octavia Prickwillow, a pair of travelling donkey punchers. Hamilton, who did not take to the travelling lifestyle and ancient country ways after a mishap with a particularly randy donkey, caught the acting bug after watching the Beckles Repertory Theatre production of Shakespeare's sequel to Macbeth, Sassanac Wankers. Young Hamilton, disgusted by the performance of the heavily costumed Willie McSpurt as Harry Acorns, leapt onto the stage, punched Willie McSpurt up the bracket, donned the costume and an acting legend was born. He was also arrested for assault, but it was this self-belief that set Hamilton on the road to stardom. After a spell at Her Majesty's Pleasure, a wiser Hamilton wrote to the BBC upon his release, extolling the virtues of his acting prowess. Tough BBC producer Michael Fluffy Sweetcheeks liked what he read and without any audition immediately cast Hamilton as a dining table in the BBC's 1950s soap opera The Grove Family. His polished performances as The Grove's dining room table soon made the stuffed shirts at the BBC sit up and take notice at this thrusting young talent and soon the Doctor Who production office came knocking on his door. Hamilton, now in his 70s and looking strangely youthful, recounts his time and his favourite stories that he was involved in on Doctor Who. I first had the call to Doctor Who when my dear friend Mervyn Pinfield wanted someone to play third ward to the left in uh, the Keys of Marinus. Uh, Mervyn had been reminded of my wonderful turn as the dining room table in the Grove family uh, by another dear friend of mine, Valentine Dial. Uh, so I went along to the BBC uh, Television Centre to see Mervyn uh, to discuss the role over a few drinks and we both ended up getting absolutely plastered and Mervyn, as we have his skull by now, he just drops his trousers in front of Lord Reef, who just did this. <laughs> I thought that's Mervyn finished, but I realised that I would be alright as I was face down, throwing up into a potted plant in the beauty foyer, so Reef never saw my face. <laughs> anyway, uh, once Mervyn sewed up, he finally sent through my contract, and that was it. I had my foot in the door. Uh, so along comes my first day of shooting, and I meet the man himself, uh, William Hartnell. Uh, I had been warned of Bill's reputation as a bit of a grumpy old so-and-so, but I found him an absolute delight to work with. A very funny and witty man, but he wouldn't accept any nonsense on set. No, no, quite the, quite the professional, quite the professional. I remember during the production, uh, Bill got extremely annoyed 
uh, with one of the cameramen eating a bag of crisps whilst he's trying to count his collection of BBC canteen cutlery. I've never seen anybody get such a reverbal dressing down uh, before or since. In fact, the cameraman was so petrified, his hair actually left right off his head and went and hid in Karen Ford's dressing room. Quite extraordinary, quite extraordinary. Um, but anyway, I digress. I had a wonderful time on the Kids Marinus, but the ward costume was bloody uncomfortable there. It really was. Um, it was nothing more than a frogman's outfit, really. But under those hot studio lights, the sweating that went on inside that suit was more than humanly possible to withstand. It really was. It really was. Um, I said to Daphne Dare, Daphne, my buttocks are so sweaty, they're like two butter mountains stuffed in a rubber bag. Mm, really, it was. Yes. Uh, but we became firm friends after that, and she never put me in rubber in front of the camera again. Uh, but I had a wonderful, wonderful way to be introduced to Doctor Who, and the end scene where the ward had blown up really, really boosted my career. It really did. Um, one of the other wards played by, uh, what was his name? Um, Ah, uh, ah, uh, Creswell Littlehampton, that was it. Anyway, he flat out refused to be any, near any form of pyrotechnics. Um, something to do with an accident involving a balloon and a bucket of welts. Um, anyway, this was my chance to get ahead in the business. We got to grab these things with both hands, you see. Uh, so I instantly went over to the director, John Gorey, and I said, Johnny, this man, Littlehampton, is going to bring the production to a halt with his whimpering. I'll do it. And that was it, easy as that. I was now second ward to the left, and I was on my way up. Um, afterwards, Bill Hartnell took me to one side and said, Hamilton, my lad, you are masterful, masterful. You saved the production and put in a tour de force performance. You'll go far. And he gave me a BBC canteen spoon from his own collection. And do you know what? I still have it today. What do I have today? Oh. Here we go. Look at that, look at that, look at that. Oh, bugger. By now, I was the go-to man for Doctor Who monsters, and naturally, I had the pick of the scripts and built a, a reputation as an actor that was quite rightly respected by all the production team at Doctor Who. Um, so when the Crotons came along, I naturally jumped at the chance to once again show uh, them how it was, should be done as, as the lead Croton. Uh, then I saw the costume. Uh, cumbersome wouldn't do it justice. It was like trying to move around in a blushy, bloody washing-up machine. <laughs> I've got that word wrong. Uh, while trying to hold a fire extinguisher. Uh, Patrick Troughton said to me, Hammy, old chap, you're going to have problems with this one. Uh, well, I thought Patrick has well and truly laid down the gauntlet. Uh, plus, he called me Hammy, which I absolutely detested. Uh, John Levine once called me Hammy, uh, so I set fire to his pet monkey. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this production is that for the first time in my career, as a monster actor, I was allowed to actually voice the monster I was playing. Uh, this really gave me the chance to get under the skin of the character. I came up with a voice like this. You see? It would have been a marvellous juxtaposition with the massive size of the robot, but trying to walk and talk in the bloody thing was damn near impossible. It really was. Um, so I said to dear David Maloney, the director, I said, this just isn't working. Uh, Bobby Holmes has written some marvellous dialogue, and I'm just not doing it justice walking around in bloody tin can. Uh, so David said to me, don't worry, we'll ADR your dialogue later. Uh, do you know what ADR stands for? Yeah? 
Alternative Dispute Resolution. I never knew why, never knew why. I thought it was something to do with recording my dialogue later. Mm, just goes to show. Anyway, uh, that kept me happier, I can tell you. And it more than made up from my walking around that bloody bathtub. <laughs> uh, but after the production of Wrapped, I sat waiting by the phone, uh, but I never ever got the call to ADR. Um, I did think it was rather strange, but dear David Maloney did promise me, and he was a man of his word. Yes. Anyway, uh, time went on, I forgot all about it, as I've been cast as a rover in The Prisoner. Um, strange bloody show that. Never understood what was going on. Never understood what was going on. Uh, Leon McCone once told me that no one knew what was going on. He just said, keep going, otherwise Patrick McGowan will attack you with a radish. Anyway, uh, long after this, I sat down one Saturday evening to watch the television, and uh, the Crotons came on, I remembered I never got the call to re-record my lines. And then to my absolute horror, I heard this weird attempt at a South African accent coming from the television. Uh, it turns out the hierarchy at the BBC uh, decided they wanted to make a political statement about apartheid and, and cast Roy Skelton to do the voice in my place. Well, I threw my whiskey at the screen. Uh, one broken telly and a waste of good booze. Uh, but whatever happened to Roy Skelton, eh? Hmm? Voicing some bloody puppet on the kids' share, that's what. Um, he did get, get the Dalek gig there. Um, I, I was off that part, you know. Oh, yes. Um, though for some reason I dared do the voice in the mail of Shirley Bassey. Um, didn't go down too well. No idea why. No idea why. Now, uh, when the Green Death came along, I wasn't quite prepared for such a difficult shoot. Uh, but it did reunite me with my dear, dear friend, John Pertwee. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, John and I went way back to when we both appeared in Carry On Screaming. Um, I was playing the part of Oddjob's finger that John's character had reanimated, and as we shared plenty of screen time together, uh, we got to know each other very well, very well indeed. And in fact, I owe John a, a great deal. Um, while I thought that I couldn't learn anything else about acting, John gave me invaluable advice that allowed me to grow as an actor. Uh, one bit of advice that he gave me was to always act alongside people that are smaller than you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, that way, Hamilton, old boy, the audience is always looking at you and not at the little squirt beside you. <laughs> uh, now, of course, this advice only works if you're not acting alongside John. Very, very vain man, vain man. Um, so when we start together in The Green Death, um, he made sure that I played the part of a maggot. Uh, dear John would never be upstage for anyone. <laughs> um, um, uh, but he did make sure that I got the lead maggot, so I do have a lot to thank him for for that. Um, but while I had a wonderful time squeezing to a giant condom, um, it was a bittersweet time for the production, uh, because what I didn't know at the time was that dear Katie Manning was leaving the show, and this was to be her last story. Uh, John was deeply upset that Katie was leaving, and when we got to her final scene, there were tears on set. I, I, I didn't cry, though. I just kept it together. I wasn't being strong for the crew. I just didn't care. Uh, now, that last scene where John drives into the sunset, that was completely unscripted. Uh, they just happened to be filming outside when John got into Bessie and drove off. Trouble is, he didn't bloody stop. No one saw him again for three weeks. Three weeks. Uh, turns out he drove to a retreat for recovering antique chair enthusiasts. Just goes to show you never know anyone, really. Oh, God, the power of Crow. 
Yeah, it's the one production I barely remember anything about. <laughs> and I have the wonderful Tom Baker to thank for that. Um, we all knew this wasn't going to be the best production, so Tom and I made up for it by getting rip-wrongly drunk each lunchtime. <laughs> um, well, thank God I didn't have to film out in those bloody marshes. Um, Tom once told me over a pint of absinthe, uh, when he finally got back on dry land, uh, the crew were fed up walking around with soggy testicles. Uh, the cameraman's crut, they called it. Um, what I do remember, though, is that on this story, um, I had two parts to play, which was a real challenge. Real challenge. Uh, Graham Williams was really thrown into the deep end when another monster actor, specialist, Montague Bushigap, dropped out at the last minute owing to his problem with piles. Um, so Graham comes up to me one lunchtime as I'm downing a double brandy, and I could see he was in a terrible flap, really panicking. Um, Hamilton, he says, I have the most enormous favour to ask of you. Uh, Bushy Gap let us all down, so can you please play the fake crawl as well? Uh, what could I say? What could I say? I knew, they knew, they were in a safe pair of hands with me, so I immediately said yes. Uh, now the costume for the fake crawl was nothing more than a gigantic rubber mushroom. Um, very easy to move in, but bloody hell was it unconvincing. I don't think I've ever been that embarrassed to be inside a costume. Uh, Tom Baker knew I wasn't happy, uh, so before I started filming the scene, Tom slipped me a triple neat gym before I went on set. <laughs> so there I was menacing poor Mary Tam, absolutely pissed out of my skull, prancing around the set doing a crap dance. They all said I was amazing in the part, but I'd consumed so much booze, I was actually bursting for a pee. Uh, so I couldn't hold it in. I couldn't hold it in. So I leave myself on the floor. But trouble was, there was so much pee, it spread across the studio floor, and Philip Maddox slipped in it and fell into a pile of swampy wigs. <laughs> he was naturally furious, and he chased me around the studio until he slipped in my pool of pee again. Uh, this actually went on for about half an hour. Um, eventually, he gave up after Tom distracted him with the story of why monks always walk around bent over double. And then later that afternoon, I had to put on the main crawl costume. Uh, such an easy one to do that. I felt embarrassed taking the money. Uh, but the BBC in those days didn't really care what he spent his money on. Um, for example, uh, they once paid for a statue of Little and Large to be erected in the BBC canteen. Uh, the bloody thing was of gush claret out of Sid Little's glasses, which made him look like he had his eyes gouged out and he was bleeding to death. Um, but after they finished putting it up, their show was cancelled, and, and they took it down again. And they wasted £11.80 on that. Absolutely shocking. Oh, yes, of course I had rivals. Of course I did. Uh, one has to have rivals to keep you fresh and on your toes. Otherwise, your performance becomes more like a depressed cushion. Uh, but it was mostly good-natured, the rivalry. Uh, but there was one particular turd that springs to mind, a rather flatulent little upstart by the name of Warrington Flange. Dreadful little fellow. Really was, really was dreadful. Uh, the little shit was always trying to upstage me. Always. Um, I was the leading monster actor for Doctor Who. And I was top of the pecking order when it came to that. Ah, uh, but along comes Warrington Flange, the so-called rebel of monster acting. It was absolutely pathetic. Um, he, has, he was a method actor, you see. He once spent weeks pretending to be a mandrill, scaring children at the local Safeways. 
uh, whereas I would turn up, put on the costume, and act the bloody part, you know? Just bloody acting. Uh, but I remember once he got his both thrown off the production of Warriors of the Deep. Uh, we are both being cast to perform as the Merka, which is now legendary in the BBC. Uh, but poor Matty Irving never lived that one down. Never lived it down. Very nearly a career killer. Really was. Um, anyway, as I was the leading monster actor, I was cast in the front half of the Merka. Uh, but as usual, Warrington made a short song and dance about that and threatened to walk off the production unless he got the Merka's head. So the director Pennant Roberts gave in to him after he threatened to throw himself off the lighting gantry, and I was shoved to the back of the bloody costume. So not only did the suffering dignity have been relegated to the back, I was also made to look into Warrington's ass. So filming eventually started, and we got to the scene where dear Ingrid Pitt did a kung fu in America. Um, she was a real trooper, but bless her, she was no Cynthia Rothrock. Now, remember I said Flange was flatulent. Well, he was, whilst he was fending off Ingrid, he broke wind with such ferocity that I was temporarily blinded. Mm. I was absolutely furious. I threw off the costume and went to punch Warrington, but as I still couldn't see, I ended up twatting Peter Davison in the family jewels, who then fell into Janet Fielding, who went arse first into Pennant Roberts, was berating Johnny Byrne at the time for writing a huge pile of shit. Well, that was me finished. I was immediately fired for poking the lead actor's ghoulies and I was thrown off the production. Um, in the end, they hired some people from a children's show about ghosts to play the Merka, but I know I've never watched Warriors. I, 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 I can't. Um, I would only be thinking that that, that would, should be me in there and their performance wouldn't be to, be to the same standard as mine. But I did have the last laugh, though, as uh, Warrington Flange died suddenly during the production of Star Cops, when he ingested one of his own farts while attempting zero-G acting. Serves him right. Well, uh, working with Warrington Flange was obviously a regret, uh, but uh, to be honest, not really. Um, I had a fantastic time in Doctor Who, and I made some truly, truly dear friends. I, I don't see much from these days, but I do bump into them now and again on the convention circuit. Um, and the fans have always been kind to me as well. I, I, they always shout prick when they see me, which is a little nickname they have for me. I think it is anyway.